are moving into kind of a, a real, a real significant shift in the book of Romans, and uh, this shift into the practical section of the book of Romans, the exhortations. Now that he's laid the groundwork for eleven chapters, um, begins with, with what I would say are perhaps the two most significant verses on the Christian life in the New Testament. Um, Whereas I think chapter 8, that we spent a long time going through, many messages in chapter 8, that single chapter is probably the the single most important chapter for living the Christian life. These two verses are the single two most important verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Many people have memorized them. I am going to uh, take them apart in great detail. But to show you how significant they are, Alan Ross says this. In the book of Romans, as well as in his other writings, the Apostle Paul gives a number of instructions for living the spiritual life by the power of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, mortify the flesh, yield your members, walk in the Spirit, and many more. Nowhere in his writings is this basic process of doing all this more clearly laid out than in these two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2 lays out the process, the goal, the significance, the basis. It it just lays all of this out. And I'm going to take us through this at extreme detail, detail that I have in 21 years have never gone to this much detail to show you uh, what's going on in in these verses. And um, as we make the the shift into chapter 12, I want to explain the the title of of this message. I don't usually talk about the title at all. The title of this message is The Only Right Response. Um, what Paul has done in 11 chapters is laid the foundation of the truth of the gospel. He starts off in, in 117 and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. And then he explains what the gospel is. He's not ashamed of it, and here's what it is in Romans 1 through 11. And, and if you really have a serious understanding, and you have, you have gained the framework of the gospel presented in chapters 1 through 11, and I'm going to review that a bit, what he says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is the only right response. <laughs> it's the only reasonable, it's the only intelligent way that, that you can respond to what's going on here. And, and it's, it's an understanding that, that the gospel really does have an impact on how we live our lives. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, an older commentator on Romans, he, he, talking about this transition, he says this, In the New Testament, religion is all about grace, and ethics is about gratitude. I like that. Um, when, when Paul presents religion, when he presents, here's the, here's the religious perspective that we have. It's all about grace, the grace of God. His, his un, un, we have an unmerited favor with him. We, we have not earned anything, but he graciously provides us and wisely and lovingly provides us an opportunity for salvation. That's all of grace. Um, and, and our ethics, how we respond to that, is all gratitude. Um, I'm going to say this again in the message, but it's, it's the thing that I have said thousands of times around here. And, I, and I, there are a lot of people, you know, say, I remember when you say, and they say things I'm like, I don't know I've ever said that. Um, I hope I never said that sometimes. But here's one I hope you can quote me saying, okay? The Christian life is a response to the already present grace of God. Um, 
that is what Romans 12 does for us. Romans 12 says the grace of God in 1 through 11, the Christian life is the response to that. Um, it, is, it is gratitude for what he has done and how significant that is. That's why he takes 11 chapters to go through it, so that we'll understand significantly. Our feet will be solidly planted on the grace of the gospel, and now we'll respond in the right way. Let me just review Romans for you. Um, here in, in big, broad, sweeping um, hunks, the book of Romans unfolds like this. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about sinfulness and why God's righteousness is needed because we don't have it. We fall short of his righteous standard. That's chapters 1 through 3, actually 1 through 320. Um, In 321, he starts to make the transition to the next section where he, he stops talking about sinfulness, and he starts talking about our salvation, the righteousness that we have that's imputed to us. It's credited to us from not because we gain it, we earn it, but it's imputed to us, it's transferred to us from Christ. Our sin is transferred, the theological word is imputed, our sin is transferred to Jesus, and his righteousness is transferred to us. And that's how salvation happens, that's a gracious plan of God, and we access it by faith. Once that happens, there's a process that starts to take place, and that's our sanctification. And that is where righteousness begins to be developed in our life. Our salvation saves us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is saving us from the power of sin in our life. And ultimately, this is where chapter 8 is going to, chapter 8 landed. Our glorification saves us from the presence of sin. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. And this is a part of this salvation package. Um, and then the question is raised, can you trust God to make all this uh, happen? And that's what Romans 9 through 11 is. We're secure in these promises of God, and God's righteousness is vindicated. So all of that has been set forth in 11 chapters. And then he turns and he says, and so here's how you should serve him, how you should worship him. Here is how, how you demonstrate this righteousness that's been imputed to your account. Um, on the website, and I'll put them out there again later, um, this chart on Romans tries to, to, to portray all of that. And, and it's this significant shift that takes place in chapter 12 that we are right in the middle of. And so just to, to reiterate, Doug Moo captures what I'm trying to say here. All theology is practical, and all practice, if it's truly Christian, is theological. Um, All the time we spend in chapters 1 through 11 has not been a waste. In fact, I'm not so sure that one of the reasons that um, the church has lost so many of the young people is because we didn't ground them in theology. Um, We just told them how to behave. We just gave them practice. You should do this. You should do this. Here's all these Christian behaviors you should have. And we didn't tie them significantly back to the theological grid that's there and and I think we need to make sure we're always thinking in terms of, yes, there's a way we should be living that's pleasing to God, but that grows out of a, of a real theological understanding. And that's, by the way, it's what Paul does in almost all of his books. He lays the theological foundation, and then he gives the practice. He never starts off with, here's how I want you to live. He always starts off with, here's what God has done, and then he makes the turn. Somewhere in the middle here, nearer the end of the book, to say, here's how we should live in response to all of that. 
Um, I put a few resources out on the table and on the web for you. Uh, one of them is a real clear resource. Um, it's by Doug Moo that talks about this, um, this, this transition and, and this need to make sure that we are worshiping in a, in a, in a, in a responsive way that makes sense. Um, kind of based on the whole thing we've been talking about here, there's a, a, a larger article by John Stott that's called A Manifesto for Evangelism. And after Paul has presented the gospel, this is kind of a, this is why the gospel needs to be presented. Um, and then a very practical one by Doug Moo on how we renew our minds, which is in this passage. Two verses, really significant. We're going to go deep because we're making this transition. Um, Tom Schreiner summarizes the two verses before we even get there this way. In light of God's saving righteousness and saving mercy, which is explained in Romans 1.16 through 11.36, Paul calls upon people to give themselves completely to God. The grace of God in Christ is the foundation for all the exhortations so that the indicative, God's grace in Christ, undergirds the imperative, the exhortations. We, we are moving from the teachings to the commands. We're, we're moving from the truth to the exhortations. We are, we are, we're moving from the doctrine to the duty. And, and what he is saying is, in light of the doctrine I've, I've talked to you, that is full of grace and mercy and God's compassion and love, in light of that, Completely dedicating ourselves to God is the only reasonable response. Um, now, I've told you I'm going to go deep. I'm really going to go deep, and I'm going to give you some resources for this. Um, so let me say just a couple things before I jump in the very deep end of the pool. I love languages. I just love them. Um, seminary, I majored in both of the biblical languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, Um, When we go to Nicaragua, I love um, listening to the Spanish and making connections between words and figuring them out. I love love Czech language when we're in the Czech Republic. I I love to learn how to pronounce things, and and I love the the interesting little details of of the history of words in Czech. There's no word for grace. It's an amazing satanic victory that they don't have a word in their their vocabulary for grace. I also love the fact that the Czech word for ice cream is zmerzlina. You go five consonants before you get a vowel. Come on, people, give me a vowel. Zmerzlina. Um, now, don't ask me why I know what ice cream is. Uh, I love language. Okay? Let's talk about biblical language. Get a little more spiritual here for a moment. Um, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, it's a very earthy language. Um, it's very um, visceral. Um, when, um, when someone is attentive to you, they're, they're being attentive. In Hebrew, that is stated very quite literally as their eyes are on you. Um, their eyes are towards you. If someone um, is angry with you, literally the Hebrew phrase is their nostrils are towards you. It's a very earthy language, okay? Um, the New Testament is very, uh, a very literal language, and it is very precise. Um, and I think that's by design, um, God's design, that, that the language um, that the New Testament was written in, um, that is not modern Greek, it's coined, called Koine Greek, was very, very, very precise. 
Um, it, it has the ability to do um, the things that I'm going to show you today. It has the, the ability to put commands in ways to say, don't ever start doing this or stop doing that just by changing one word related to the command. You'll, I'll show you in the passage today. Um, it has the ability to say whether what you're being asked to do is do it one time, do it one time once for all, or whether you have to do it again and again and again. It's, it's a very precise language. So in light of that, I want to put Romans 12.1 up there for you and, and talk, it through, talk you through it word for word in Greek, okay? If you were translating this, and any English Bible is going to translate this smoother, um, but this is just to give you a, a feel for, for these words. Um, the, the, the word-for-word translation says this, I exhort, therefore, you never put this therefore at the beginning of a, of a sentence. It's always a, the second word in there. I, I exhort, therefore, uh, you, brothers, um, through or on the basis of, this, this, this word, is, it's literally a preposition that means through, but it's, beca- it's almost like you, because you've come through, um, the compassion of Theu, of, of God, the compassion. And it's interesting, this is not the word for mercy. And I know a lot of the English Bibles translate this mercy, and that's not a bad translation, but there's another word that's our word for mercy. This is a word for compassion that means um, you see somebody, and, and it's not just you have mercy on them. You don't treat them the way they deserve to be treated. This is you have compassion because they are in such a miserable, difficult situation that your heart goes out to them, and, and you, you have compassion. Your heart moves because of the desperate situation that they're in. Um, boy, that captures what God has done for us in Romans 1 through 11. And, and he, what he does is he's exhorting you, brothers, because of this compassion God has for us, um, to present. Now, this is a, a particular form in, in Greek. It's an aorist, and it, it has this definitive feel. Um, it's called a snapshot. Aorist means um, uh, not time. Uh, it, it basically is it's, it's a, a definitive, present yourself. Um, this isn't this thing that, okay, needs to be going. Man, make these decisive decision to present your bodies, which is a, all of you, every, every bit of you. By the way, he's just talked about the resurrection of the body um, as a sacrifice. And then he just throws three words in there, a sacrifice. And then he says, living, holy, pleasing to God. Um, this sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to God. And then at the end, he, he, he just says the logical um, service of worship. And by the way, this, that, the, the word logical, um, if you know a little bit of Greek from your fraternity or sorority days, there's an L, an O, and a G there. It's logic. I mean, it's, it's the word logical, um, logizomai. Um, it means you're logical, you're reasonable, you're intelligent. And then this next word, um, latruo, is, is a word, um, I guess I can um, illustrate it this way. What, what started at 9 o'clock today, and we'll have another one at 1045, you might say the service started then, okay? But you might also say the worship started then. It's the same kind of thing because worship is service and service is worship. This word captures all of that too. And so some English translations are either going to call it worship, some of them are going to call it service, 
some of the ones that are um, trying to be as literal as possible, like the New American Standard, are going to call it service of worship. It's your logical service of worship. Um, putting this all back together, Paul's, Paul's exhorting them um, on the basis of all they know about God's compassion and what he's done for us, so that we would present in this definitive way our entire selves to God as a sacrifice, and, and that's the only reasonable way we should serve and worship him. Um, I'm going to expand that into a sentence here. Here's what it looks like if you expand that. In light of what he's just highlighted, by the way, the therefore is in light of what he just said about God's glorious, mysterious plan that is above everything. In light of what I just highlighted, God's ways are so glorious and wise. I'll turn my attention to an authoritative encouragement. That's why it's an exhortation. I exhort you, an authoritative encouragement. He's not just giving advice. Hey, it might be good if you do this. This is authoritative. Because of what you've learned about God's compassionate grace expressed in the gospel that delivers us from the horrible and hopeless predicament of being separated from his presence and love, decisively present all that you are as a lifelong, set-apart, and pleasing, acceptable sacrifice of full dedication to God, which is the only logical response of worship and service to who God is and what he has done for us through Christ. Um. There's a lot of precision in there, um, and if you're, if you're reading well and you're reading slow, you, you, there's a lot in there. I'm going to unpack some of that for us. Um, a proper understanding of the nature and work of God is the foundation for our daily transformation in life. Um, he starts off with this therefore. It's a therefore on the basis, again, he's, just, he's looking back to the last doxology section of chapter 11 where he has said... Um, <laughs> God has so much knowledge and wisdom and riches that, that no one needs to help him out, be his counselor, or pay him off. He's got everything he needs. He's beyond needing anything from us, and he's got our salvation figured out. And it all is to bring him glory. Well, in light of that glorious way that God has figured it out, um, he's going to urge them, and this is Again, it's not advice. It's, it's, the word is an authoritative, listen, I, I am telling you, this is how you're supposed to live. And it's in view of God's compassion. Um, again, the, the word is, is, it can be translated pity. The pity that God had on us because we were in a pitiable condition. We were so far estranged from him. Um, and Paul is encouraging them. He has just taught them significantly. He's just spent 11 chapters laying out doctrine, significant implications along the way. But now he's turning this corner, and he's going to encourage and exhort, and he's going to make it really clear. Um, Chuck Swindoll says, A good encourager challenges without condemning, instructs without lecturing, inspires without condescending, and helps another toward excellence. That's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to be an encourager. Literally, the word means to come alongside, to encourage. Um, it's the word for a counselor, an encourager, um, a, a cheerer, um, a coach. It's, it's that kind of a sense that he's coming alongside to help them move toward the appropriate response. Um, and it's all based on the compassion that God has had for us that he spent 11 chapters talking about. Tom Schreiner says this, um, carrying out the imperatives would be an impossibility without the indicative. Indeed, those who strive to fulfill the commands of Romans 12 through 15, apart from the gospel enunciated in chapters 1 through 11, have truncated the Pauline gospel. 
The gospel is not just behave this way. Again, I think we've done so much damage by just giving people um, lists of how to behave. And, and sometimes I, I feel the pressure from people to, and I think there's probably some legitimate criticism here, to be more practical. <laughs> be more practical. But, but folks, if anything, I want to be more theological because I, I, want, I want you to understand why it is only reasonable to serve God the way we serve him. Now, when the Bible's very practical, I'm going to be very practical, but, but it's laying this foundation because just living out the ethics um, without the foundation, um, it's just legalism, and it's unsatisfying. Um, it, it's frustrating. Um, and I think for a whole generation, it has become um, unappealing to just live in a certain way, because everybody else is having a lot more fun, it seems. And so why would we live this way? Well, part of it is because because of how we're designed, this is the way to really find true life, to live truly in community. Um, Paul's going to go on. I'm going bit by bit here. (laughs) Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This word offer, present, Um, It is this definitive idea, a conscious recognition and a decision to submit to the authority of God. Present yourself to his authority in this ongoing, is the ongoing requirement for our daily transformation in life. Um, Present yourself as living sacrifices. Um, It's been said by so many people, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. And that, that, that's true for us. We throw ourselves up there, then when we're still alive, we're going to crawl. Um, but so it's, it's this decisiveness. I'm going I'm to submit myself to be a sacrifice to God. And the idea of this sacrifice, I'm going to go back to something I did five years ago, <laughs> studying through the book of Leviticus. Um, and again, we study through the book of Leviticus in one sense, so I could preach Romans. <laughs> because you have to understand that stuff back there. He says, present yourself a living sacrifice. And when he's looking back at, at Leviticus and the sacrifices that are talked about there, there's something specific he's thinking about. Al Ross says this, the idea is drawn from the Israelite dedication offering in Leviticus 2. The sacrifice is one of complete surrender of our bodies, our lives, our possessions, and our abilities as a perpetual dedicated offering to God. He's got one particular sacrifice in mind. Um, Back when we were going through Leviticus, um, we said this, A theology of sacrifice will make clear to us the complexity of sin, the grandeur of grace, and the fullness of forgiveness. And we spent five weeks talking about each one of the five sacrifices that are presented in Leviticus 1 through 7. It goes through it two times, um, once for the people, once for the priests, but there's five sacrifices. Here they are. This is the order in which you would have offered these sacrifices, Okay. There's the sin offering, which would have been the first one. You step into the the temple courts, you step into the courts, you're going to have to offer a sin offering because you're coming into the presence of God, the Shekinah's in the Holy of Holies. You're coming into his presence, and and you need to be purified. Your sin needs to be cleansed. You need to be purified so you can be there. So the first thing you do is you offer a sin offering um, that is... um, an atoning offering that, that purifies you and, and takes care of your sin in this symbolic way as you, as the, as the worshiper, you sacrifice the animal. 
And the idea is I'm holding this animal and I kill the animal with an understanding. I'm placing my hand on the animal to identify what's happening to this animal should be happening to me. This is a substitutionary sacrifice to take care of my sin. That's the sin offering. Very, very closely related to the sin offering is called the trespass offering or the reparation offering. It's when you've sinned, but it's damaged somebody. You've sinned, but the sin is against somebody and you have to repair it. And it may be against God's name or, you know, you've, you've damaged God's reputation and you have to make it right. So you offer the same sin offering and then you repay the damage that you've done plus 20%. You have to repair it. So those are the first two things you have to take care of. Then you go through the offering that we're talking about here in Romans that he's alluding to. It's the whole burnt offering. I'm purified. I can be in God's presence. And now it's not just a portion of the animal, and it's not just the blood that is offered on the altar. What is offered on the altar is the entire animal. They kill the animal. They put the entire animal there, and it is completely burned up, and the aroma goes up uh, before God. And the idea is I'm completely dedicating myself to God. A substitute has taken care of my sin and purified me. And now this is my complete dedication and God's complete acceptance of it. After those three offerings, there's what's called the grain offering or the meal offering. And that's more what we think of as our regular offering. You're giving a portion, um, of your, um, your income to support the work of God. This all culminates in the peace or the fellowship offering, which is a party. Now they're not pouring blood and burning animals. They are cooking the animals, and you get to eat them, you and your family, and any poor people you would want to bring along, which is one of the reasons that in the Bible um, the poor are never forsaken because they should always be able to come up to the temple to eat when people are celebrating this peace or fellowship offering. This is the flow. You take care of your sin. You repay any damage. You're fully dedicated to God. Then you give your offering to support the work of the Lord. And then there's a great celebration of peace and fellowship with God. He's talking about the center one there on the chart, the, the whole burnt offering, where, where the whole thing is burned up as a symbol of your entire dedication and God's full acceptance. Derek Kidner says this, the essential meaning of this sacrifice is explicitly and powerfully captured in the ritual itself. The distinguishing feature of this sacrifice, as opposed to the others, was that the whole of it was burnt up on the altar. It speaks of total surrender, entire consecration, and complete dedication to God. None of it is held back. It is offered without reserve, no less than an unqualified and unreserved giving of oneself as represented by the substituted victim was in an adequate response to the saving grace and covenant love of God. Back in the Old Testament, what they were being taught was your sin is taken care of by a substitute. And the only reasonable response to that is to dedicate yourself fully to God. Um, it's just so rich. <laughs> but he's not talking about a ritual for us. I'm not asking any of us to build a fire. <laughs> not asking any of us to um, find somebody who's got cattle. <laughs> what is remarkable is that Paul applied the language of the Old Testament worship rituals to everyday existence. The worship described doesn't relate to public assemblies, but to the yielding of one's whole life to God in the concrete reality of everyday existence. This is the complete um, submission of yourself to, to God. 
on a regular, just deciding this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to live my entire life submitted to God. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not going to give him a portion of it. I'm not going to give him my Sunday morning and a little bit more. I'm going to give my entire life to God. So again, if you want to quote me, or you want to put something on my tombstone, this is what I want. The Christian life is responding to the already present grace of God. In the Old Testament, your sins are forgiven, so you're wholly dedicated to him. In the New Testament, God's great gospel plan that Paul's not ashamed of. Our sin had separated us from God. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, validated by the resurrection, the gracious, loving, wise plan of God says, accept that by faith and you're reconciled. You have peace. You're saved. You're made alive. You have a new identity in Christ. Now you have the Holy Spirit to help you change your life and be sanctified. And you can trust God to do his part. In, in light of all of that grace of God, um, present your whole life as a sacrifice to him. God doesn't want something from us. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your time. He doesn't want your talents. He wants you. He wants a he wants you, a living sacrifice, not a portion. He wants you. Now, that doesn't mean you, you can't play volleyball or mow the lawn or go to the Razorback game. Or It doesn't mean that. It just means how you do that is all about your identity with, with him. Every, every element of your life is presented as, as this thing that you say, I'm surrendering all of this to him, every piece of it. And God, you can have it all. He, he's going to call this our logical service of worship. Now, I know um, a lot of the translations have spiritual there, and, and they're, they're trying to get this to not be completely rational, and, and it's not. There's, there is something more full about this, um, but it, I think it's trying to communicate that a daily life of submission to the purposes of God is the only reasonable response to God's worth and his work. Um, and again, Doug Moo's article that is uh, out on the Connection Center or on the, on the web, um, it, it is a, a great explanation of, of this, um, this logical response. John Stott says it this way. Spiritual, this sometimes translated spiritual, translates logikos. Um, which could mean either reasonable or rational. If the former is correct, then the offering of ourselves to God is seen as the only sensible, logical, and appropriate response to him in view of his self-giving mercy. If rational is correct, then it is the worship offered by mind and heart, spiritual as opposed to ceremonial, an act of intelligent worship in which minds are fully engaged. I think it's really kind of the package of both of that. It's not just a ritual. It is your mind fully aware of what you're going through. You're not just going through motions you're you're engaged in this worship and because you're engaged you need to understand that this worship that you do by presenting your body to God to serve him to love him um it grows out of this great theological foundation frank thielman uh summarizes this one verse this way the gospel as paul has explained it in 116 through 1136 has demonstrated that god's kindness love and mercy are evident in the justification of sinners through the death of christ and through their release from bondage to sin uh, 
Believers should conduct their day-to-day affairs in edifying and loving ways because this is the most appropriate way to worship the loving God who has freed them to love others. Do you see how significant this is? On the basis of all that we've learned, give yourself fully to God. Now he's going to do a second verse that is equally significant. Here's the literal word-for-word translation. He says, and not. And by the way, there's two ways to say not in Greek, ou or may. Ou is kind of a softer not, and may is a more harsh not. Um, In this sense, it's a stop. Um, Stop allowing yourself to be conformed. This is kind of pushed into a mold. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. It's the word for a schematic. Don't live by the schematic of the, of the age, the present age. But, um, and again, these are they're passives. Allow yourself to be transformed. The word is metamorphosis. Allow yourself to be metamorphed um, by renewing your mind, getting, getting a new mind, um, in order that you can, can, can test and prove what the will of God is, and it's good and pleasing and complete or perfect. Again, these words are, are full, and they're precise, and they're significant. Um, an, an expanded translation of this, by the way, this is all on your, the out, back of your outline in your bulletin. He says, now, stop allowing yourself to be forced into the mold of the current world system. In contrast to worldly values shaping who you are and how you behave, constantly allow yourself to be transformed into the image of Christ by regularly and consistently shaping your thoughts, desires, and choices to be consistent with how the Word of God is applied in your life by the Spirit of God, which will result in your ability to test your choices and know that they are approved as the good, acceptable, and complete will of God in every circumstance of life. That's how we should live, um, and, and how we do that is, is, first of all, stop being conformed. Um, this is um, a present passive imperative, okay? It's a passive imperative in the sense of you have to permit this, you have to allow this to happen. Stop allowing this to happen. Um, and the, the may means it, it's not a don't be um, conformed, it's stop being conformed. The natural thing is for us to be conformed to the pattern of the world, for the world to just be molding us. That naturally happens. We don't have to try to make that decision. It happens. Stop being conformed to this pattern of the age. An ongoing commitment to not allow the world to mold you in thinking or behavior It's the great challenge of the Christian life submitted to God's purpose. If if you're going to really submit, the problem is the world is trying to force you into its mold. Here's the the word. Um, It it is a a harsh no. Stop. Stop doing what comes so naturally. And, And this word means to be molded according to a pattern. It's made up of a Greek preposition meaning with and a term from which we get a schematic. Stop allowing the schematic to form your life. It's an outward conformity to a mold, and it just happens naturally. You've got to decide to not let it happen. The grammatical form is a present passive imperative. The passive means you are allowing it to happen to you. When used with may, it indicates that an action which is already happening should be stopped. And because it's present, instead of that other one, the heiress that I talked about, because it's a present, this one is ongoing. You've got to do this one all the time. You have to kind of wake up and just go, whoa, I've got to stop that, because it's naturally happening to you. 
And what he says is, don't, don't allow yourself to be formed by the schematic of the world. Don't, don't allow the world to keep molding you. No, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A, a constant saturation with the Word of God is the means of finding and living out the will of God. It's being transformed by renewing your mind. This word for transformed is the opposite. The word itself means to transform or change from the inside out. It's a metamorphosis, an inward change. It's not a mere external conformity, but an internal change of orientation and perspective. That's why it's not okay just to preach Romans 12 through 16 and forget 1 through 11. Because 1 through 16, or 12 through 16, is just the external conformity. 1 through 11 is changing your perspective, getting you to appreciate what all is going on with with God. Um, It's the basis of our word metamorphosis. Again, the grammatical form is a present passive imperative. The passive indicates a command uh, of allowing it to happen. Technically, it's called a permissive passive. Allow the Word of God to change you. And again, how does that happen? A significant, significant verse related to this is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. At one sense, contemplating the Lord's glory is what he's done for 11 chapters. Contemplating the Lord's glory is seeing all that God has done for us. And that transforms us into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God does the transformation. He's the one who is transforming us, and we have to allow it to happen. We have to stop allowing the world to mold us and start allowing the Spirit to mold us. Now, I did this before. Uh, Let me take some of the extra phrases out of this verse, okay? As we all contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His image. That's, That's what the verse says, okay? How do we contemplate the Lord's glory? Know what God is teaching us in the Bible. This isn't, I mean, it, it can be a sunset. It can be being in nature. But the primary direct way we understand God's glory is through his word and, and the, the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit of God in conjunction with the word of God, forming us into the image of the Son of God. How do you know the glory of God? Read the story. Read your Bible in some way. Read it, Genesis to Revelation. Read the 11 books that we talked about. Those 11 books are the storyline of the Old Testament. And if you just want storyline, read the 11 books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Read those books and you get the storyline of the Old Testament. Read a gospel, Mark, it's short, read it, Acts, and Revelation. You get the storyline that way. Or take one book and read it for a month. Just read it over and over, even if it's a short book. Read it for them. Somehow get the Word of God in you so that you're seeing the glory of God in the story. Chuck Swindoll says, the Holy Spirit promises by G- promised by Jesus on the eve of his resurrection, uses, uses scripture, experiences, trials and hardship, and fellowship with other believers to renovate us from the inside out. The transformation comes when the people of God are using the word of God by the spirit of God to look like the son of God. And you do that in community. I'm going to let M- Michael make this transition next week. This whole section is all about how we live in community. 
And the result is so that you will be able to test and approve. You'll be able to figure out um, what God's will is, and, and God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. You'll be able to figure that out if you start not with, I don't know what God wants me to do. He, he won't tell me anything. No, be overwhelmed with his glory. Get yourself saturated with the glory of God in the Bible. Understand the truth of the gospel. And if you understand that, so much of it becomes clear, and so much of it becomes, it doesn't matter as long as I do whatever I'm going to do lovingly and representing Christ well. Frank Thielman says, Believers are not only to present their bodies as a sacrifice to God, but are to avoid patterning their lives after this age. Instead, allow God to transform them from the inside out so that they both approve and engage in the good works that God desires. And it has something to do with renewing your mind. It's how you think. It's orienting your worldview, your thought patterns. It's orienting the inputs into your mind. And renewing that, because the world's shoving things into it. And you've got to renew and get good gospel teaching in there. Um, gosh, there's some great, great podcasts out there. There's some really horrible ones out there. Be discerning, find the good ones. Alan Ross says, So the essentials of spiritual growth are dedication, separation from the world and to God, and transformation by the renewing of the mind. That's it. Dedicate, present yourself to God, all of you. A sacrifice all burnt up on the altar. Separate from the world so that it's not forming your lifestyle and be transformed by changing the way you think. Doug Moose summarizes, in light of God's mercies revealed through Jesus Christ, our only proper response is the dedication of all of our faculties to him. We must resist the process of being molded according to the conventions and values of the present age. Rather, we must yield ourselves to God's Spirit who reshapes our thinking in order that we might test out and demonstrate His will in life experience. Here's my shot at a summary. Give yourself wholly to God. Don't be shaped by the world's values, but let the truth of God's grace in the gospel shape your entire life. The Christian life is an ongoing response to the already present grace of God. And if you want to make that more powerful in your life, understand the grace of God more. Don't figure out the list. The thing that's going to drive the energy into your obedience is not clarity of a list. It is, it is changing the way you think. Um, if I want to have a deeper and more intimate relationship with my wife, Dawn, I don't need to just get more lists from her. That's, that's actually not very um, endearing. What I need to do is, is get to know her more and fall more in love with her and know more of the just depth of her character, which drives me to go, what can I do to help? <laughs> Give me your list. It doesn't feel like a list. It just feels like how I want to be a, a partner with what you're doing. Our relationship with God is that same way. He doesn't want, Dawn doesn't want me to just get up in the morning and, and ignore her and do my list. <laughs> and all of this is lived out in community. I don't have time to go through it, but there's a book um, by Marva Dawn, um, and it's, it's 200 pages on Romans 12, 
called Truly the Community. And she talks about living this out in community because, by the way, all of those imperatives, they're in the plural. This is how we do this in community. Michael's going to talk about this a lot next week. So, so where do we go from here? A couple of next steps. Make a commitment to be more grounded in the Word of God and biblical doctrine focused on the grace of God. Make a commitment to understand truth better. Read your Bible. Understand doctrine. Get yourself... I mean, think about the things you're watching and listening to and, and figure out the proportions and how much input. And if you need you know, better input things, uh, let me know. I'm, send me an email and I'll say, here's five things that one of them is really going to connect with you, okay? I, I listen to a lot of stuff. Um, listen to my Leviticus messages. Do something that's biblical. Become a critical thinker and evaluator of the values of the world. Don't just buy what they're saying. You can't trust anybody. You can trust the Bible, but you can't trust what, what everybody's selling out there. Because you can find somebody who'll say anything. And consciously allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to shape you into the image of the Son of God. That's the goal. Would you stand with me, and I'm going to pray for us before we worship again. Father, may our lives be lives of worship. Uh, The songs we sing, may they be um, pledges of dedication to to live for you. Uh, Father, I pray that... um, our lives would be grounded in the truth of Scripture that shines glory on your character, lights you up, and that 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 would be the motivator, the driver for us to live our lives in ways that please you. Father, transform us by your Spirit to look like your Son. We submit to doing that. Amen.